0: hi uh good afternoon or morning depending on when it is that you are watching this i'm recording this at about eleven forty-five in the morning on wednesday may 31st which if you're keeping score is about two weeks late from what i told you i would do um, if you don't know what this recording is uh, my intention is to uh, navigate the last four or five verses of mark chapter three it's a passage excuse me, that's not true. Uh, it's earlier than that. But anyway, it's, a, it's, a, it's the last chunk of uh, a three-part teaching that Jesus does. We walked through it a few Sundays ago, Mark chapter 3. Jesus is confronted. He's accused of being the prince of demons, Beelzebub or Beelzeball, depending on what translation you have. And Jesus refutes that. The way that he does, though, almost introduces more, maybe not questions or, or even problems, but just challenges. It, it's a it's a bit of a strong rebuttal, and I think it's uh, appropriate when you understand what Jesus is saying. It makes sense in context, but my job is to give you that context. So um, I was going to do this at the end of a sermon. It didn't seem like it fit very well. I think it would have taken too long, and so my intention has been to do it as a supplemental teaching, which is what this is, 15, 20 minutes, something like that. Uh, I'm saying at the beginning, so hopefully I'll hold myself to that, to that uh, time stamp. Um, So that's my intention. I want to read that passage to you, the whole thing. I want to give you some context on what Jesus is talking about. Maybe uh, I can help you understand what Jesus isn't saying. I think that could be as helpful as understanding what he is saying, just to kind of narrow the focus and to pull some of the fear out of this passage for you or or maybe for someone else who you know who's been struggling with this topic. Um, And so I'm going to use three tools to do that. So let me tell you what we have here. I've got my copy of God's Word. I have a lot of different Bibles. You probably do too. Uh, This is just the English Standard Version here. This is a nice one that somebody bought for me a while ago. I actually, I don't think I've ever opened it before today, but it was on my shelf. All of my personal Bibles are at home. So I'm open here to Mark chapter three. We're gonna jump in at about verse 22. So this is the passage that lies between when uh, Mark names the 12 apostles good Judas, bad Judas, Peter, Simon the Zealot. You remember those guys. Uh, And then the chunk where Jesus deals with his mother and brothers and who is his family. So chronologically, I remember that I, uh, lucky me, I preached the passage on Jesus' mother on Mother's Day. That was the 14th. So this section of scripture that we're going to look at will fit chronologically between the sermons I preached on March 7th, May 7th, and May 14th of this year, 2023. So I've got that tool with me. I also have Uh, This is by R. Kent Hughes. He goes by Kent, but longtime Presbyterian pastor. This Preaching the Word series is a great commentary series. It is essentially a collection of sermons preached by whoever the author is of that given volume of the commentary. So for Mark, uh, this is a collection of, I think, 54 sermons from Kent Hughes. He covers almost the whole chapter, the whole book. He skips uh, a major chunk. At the end of uh, Mark chapter 3, there's a handful of parables. It's actually where we are uh, in the next few weeks from our preaching standpoint. But he does every other verse, which is great. It has some strengths in that it shows you how a pastor who maybe you can trust, or, or at least that I trust, would navigate passages like this. But its weaknesses are it's a set of sermons that were designed to be preached to a specific group of people in a specific place at a specific time. So in that sense, it's less a commentary and more a collection of sermons, probably that doesn't make a difference to you and you don't care, but I'm just giving you some insider info on my world. So that's tool number two. And then tool number three, which I'm really excited to share with you, I'm actually gonna read a little bit of this, is the New American Commentary. The New American Commentary, this edition was published in 1991. So I was one year old or less. Um, and it, is, it does it's best to be exegetical in the sense that it draws out what's happening in the text but also uh, theological. So it's going to build in some outside ideas to help the text function and fit into the larger framework of Christianity. Again, that may not mean anything to you, but I find it to be good. I don't know a lot about James Brooks who wrote this volume. I've never looked him up, but Broadman Press publishes this and they are a pretty decent, uh, generally kind of Baptist leaning publishing house out of Texas. Uh, and you'll see that the commentary in, on the passage that we're dealing with, I feel like is very uh, incisive, if you'll allow me to use an academic word. It, it cuts to the point of the heart of the text without wasting a lot of time. So that's what we're going to use. My objective is to start with scripture. I'm going to give you some insight from the New American Commentary, offer a couple comments from the R. Kent Hughes Preaching the Word commentary set, I'm just going to talk to you about it after that for about 10 minutes. So that said, Mark chapter three, beginning in verse 22, here is what happened. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, this is people that are Jesus' opponents. They're not on his team. They're not in his camp. They were saying Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. That's how the ESV translates that. Um, And they were also saying it's by the prince of demons that Jesus casts out demons So Jesus called these scribes, these opponents of his, to himself. He got them together. And he said, with a story, he asked a question. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? So if you think I'm Satan, Jesus is saying, how can I do the things that you've seen me do? Verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So there's a big picture idea of a kingdom, a common idea. For you and I, we might say a nation, a country, an empire, a democracy. Uh, No political commentary here, just to say that we live in 2023 in a nation that is divided against itself. So the question stands, how can we stand? What future hope do we have if we have become so bipartisan that we're almost two countries that share one set of borders and one government? It's a good question he asks. He goes on to say, Uh, In verse 25, if a house is divided against itself, so he starts with a kingdom, then he goes a little smaller, a household. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Verse 26, now he goes to the individual. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is instead coming to an end. So Jesus is using one set of what sounds like kind of hypothetical or theoretical ideas to communicate a point. It's just an illustration. He's saying, you guys know this, kingdoms don't fight themselves. That's, that would be a civil war. Households don't fight themselves. That's a divorce. Um, Individual people don't fight themselves or else they self-destruct. So the principle that's in play in the minds of the scribes, Jesus is trying to call that into question. He's saying, that's not, that's not really sound reasoning. And I think you guys know that because you would never apply this reasoning to a kingdom, a household, or even an individual. He goes on to say in verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder that strong man's goods, unless he first binds or ties up or subdues the strong man, then indeed he may plunder the house. Now, I'm not going to re-preach the sermon that I did on May the 7th. You are welcome to go listen to that if that's something that you feel like you would benefit from. Um, But the big point is that Jesus has come into the house of the strong man, Satan. He's come into the world. That's Satan's short-term home based on our understanding of what's going on in eternity. And he's plundering Satan's goods. He's taking people back from Satan, who Satan has won to himself with selfishness and with carnal desires and with all kinds of wickedness. He's won them away from loyalty to God and made them loyal to themselves, which is actually loyalty to him because his objective is that all people destroy themselves because he hates humanity. He hates all of creation. So we talked about all of that and what that means. Here's the piece of this that we haven't talked about yet. Jesus goes on to say in verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. That's very theologically rich. That would be worth you spending some time studying just that phrase, meditate on that. All sins will be forgiven. It's really interesting. Okay, but he says, and whatever blasphemies people utter, even if they curse God's name, they will be forgiven. You can't out curse God. You can't out sin God. But that's an important but right there. Verse 29, whoever blasphemes, a word that we don't use very much now, whoever blasphemes against The Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God or the breath of God is the way this is written in Greek, the pneuma of God. He never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. That's very scary. That's hard to understand. It's my job to help you grapple with what's going on there, okay? Um, But just notice in verse 30, we get a quick explanation from Mark. What is Jesus talking about? He said these things because the people were saying about him, he has an unclean spirit. So again, verse 28, Jesus says, All sins, all blasphemies will be forgiven. That's good. Verse 29, Jesus says, there is a kind of sin. There's a blaspheming against the spirit of God that is unforgivable. And then verse 30 is Mark telling us that Jesus is only applying that idea. So this is a key thought for you today. Jesus is only applying the idea that there is an unforgivable kind of sin to specifically people in his immediate context, people who are standing right in front of him, who are accusing him of being possessed by an evil spirit. So that's where we're headed. That's going to be the key is verse 30 to understanding what Jesus is talking about in verse 29. So uh, before I kind of get on my soapbox here, maybe you feel like I already am, but I'm trying not to be yet. Let me read to you a little bit from what James Brooks says here. I think this is very helpful. Um, In verse 30, which is the last verse that we just talked about, where Mark says they were saying these things about Jesus because they said he had an evil spirit. Here's how James Brooks handles that. I'm just going to read this to you. This will be a long form quote. So sorry if this is boring. If you're watching me, you can close your eyes. Maybe if it helps you, here's what he says. He says in verse 30, Mark defined the sin that quote will never be forgiven. Yes, he did. Here's what that sin is. It is ascribing to Satan. It is giving Satan credit for the works of the Holy Spirit, specifically the way the spirit of God has been manifesting in Jesus' ministry. So what does that mean? What has Jesus been doing? He's been expelling demons. That's the whole thing that the scribes are there to pick on him about that day. They're saying, how can he expel demons? Well, he can only do it by the devil's power. So Jesus is rebutting that. But it's not just that. It's also the healing of people. It's the saving of people. It's the forgiving of their sins. These are all the things Jesus is doing that are uniquely divine in nature or supernatural by nature. And they're saying that the only way Jesus could do that is because it's actually Satan working through him, not the Holy Spirit. So they understand correctly that Jesus isn't doing these things in his own power. They've been listening a little bit because he said a couple of times, he derives his authority from his father. They think his father is Satan. He knows and we know that his father is actually God, the father, Yahweh. Okay, James Brooks goes on to say, this attributing of the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan, giving Satan credit for what God has done, this is not a single act but it's a habitual action and attitude because it's written in the imperfect tense. We can read in verse 30 where Mark tells us they were saying these things because they thought Jesus had a demon. Another way to read that in English is they continually said, they kept on saying that Jesus had a demon. This was regular, repeated. It's them communicating the state of their heart. They're not saying, I wonder if he has a demon one time. They have regularly slandered and spread this evil about Jesus that he derives his power from Satan. It's become a habit for them. And that habit indicates a heart posture and that heart posture indicates that they are attributing to Satan what God has done. James Brooks goes on to say, In this instance, in Mark 3.30, at least the sin was committed by scholars and religious authorities, not laypersons. Apparently that kind of sin is quite rare. So the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit James Brooks says, pretty rare, not something that's going to probably happen to anybody normal like you who doesn't work at a church or teach at a seminary, etc. He says, in addition to the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke, the only other instance of a similar sin in the New Testament is the sin that leads to death, which we find in 1 John, not John the gospel, but in 1 John, the letter that John wrote, chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. That sin probably is refusal to identify the divine Christ with the human Jesus. So it's separating Jesus into, well, he's a good man, but he's not the Messiah, which is the chief sin uh, from the New Testament's perspective of uh, people who still practice religious Judaism, that they see Jesus as a fine teacher. Same thing uh, to the Muslim religion, that they would see Jesus as a fine teacher, but he's not divine. He's not God. 1 John five sixteen and 17 is saying, then you're not giving him credit for being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that endangers your own soul. It's not that God rips your get out of hell free card out of your hand and says, I changed my mind, you can't be saved. No, not at all. It's that you yourself are not interested in the kind of salvation that Jesus offers because you don't want him to be God. You don't think he is God. You don't think he can even do the kinds of things that would lead to him being able to save you. So it's very much you oriented this sin, but it's also rare, so don't worry. It's not something you can just like bump into and suddenly you're damned for eternity and you didn't know and you don't find out until you step into eternity, not at all. Uh, James Brooks finishes by saying, thus in both Mark and 1 John, this is the unforgivable sin, the stubborn refusal to acknowledge that God is working or has worked in Jesus. The stubborn refusal to acknowledge that God is working or has worked in Jesus. The only other thoughts that I'll add from my toolbox here from R. Kent Hughes's uh, commentary sermon set on this passage is further comfort hopefully for your soul and your mind Kent Hughes says, it's not the ignorant blasphemer on the street who is in danger of committing the unforgivable sin. And maybe that's what you think. Maybe that's what you've been taught, that a person who's stone drunk on the side of the road, maybe they show up for a church service at 10 a.m. here at 382 Muldoon Road. They don't know what we are. Are we a soup kitchen? Are we a closed closet? Are we a church? They stumble in. They rant and rave through the whole service. F God, damn God. I mean, they just they just swear and curse and hate Uh No, those specific behaviors are not on their own unforgivable. However, if in their heart, their perspective would be that it's the devil, it's God's enemy that has done the good things in their life and that Satan is actually good and for them and God is bad and against them, that's not just unforgivable, that's them refusing to receive forgiveness. They don't want anything from God. I think a helpful parallel here would be to remember if you were around back in 2020, 2021, we worked through the book of Exodus And we had some trouble, some of us had some trouble understanding what the Bible means when it tells us that God hardened the heart of the Pharaoh. And I tried to make this clear to you then, maybe it'll come to mind now. Uh, This is helpful, the thing that I kind of, I learned as we were studying through that, is that Pharaoh wanted his heart to be hardened. When God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, when God allows a person to commit the unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about here, he's giving them what they want. They want separation from God. They don't think God is good and they just lost patience with him. They believe God is bad, evil against them, not good, not okay. Now, uniquely in human history, this is a little bit of cultural commentary for you, uh, we live in a day and an age where that's becoming a lot more of a common perspective among the people around us. So when the New American Commentary was written in 1991, when R. Kent Hughes published this about 10 years ago, the prevailing culture in America was Christianity adjacent, at least cultural Christianity, maybe what you've heard, maybe you grew up in the South. We call that the buckle or the Bible belt. Texas is often the the buckle or Georgia or Alabama. We all kind of claim that we're the buckle, but it's a belt of states where the Bible's a big deal. And even if you're not a Christian, you go to church. And even if you don't go to church, you know what the Bible is. You probably own one. That's changing. And I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing for individuals that it's changing. It's certainly bad for our culture because now we're just we're turning into the kind of culture that existed in the book of Judges, where we just all do whatever we think is right, and we attack and kill each other over subjective stuff that nobody can define and nobody understands. Um, But the the soil, I guess, in which our souls are growing here in the United States right now is a soil in which uh, the introduction of Christ, the Bible, Jesus, anything that's kind of pseudo-Judeo-Christian at all, is often perceived as very negative. And so I would actually say that the odds of unsaved people, quote unquote, committing the unforgivable sin, it's probably higher now than it's been for a really long time because people aren't just rejecting the church or Jesus because they've had a bad experience or they don't understand. They are glorifying anything that represents God's enemy, Satan or the satanic church, whatever. uh, And they're doing it to the detriment of Christians. They're trying to find ways to isolate and pick on believers. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not at all trying to say that persecution in the West is anywhere near the severity or the physical danger level of what exists in the eastern part of the world? Not at all. I don't think most of us who live in the West have been persecuted yet, but I think we will be. I think we will experience some danger, some threat on our livelihoods, some crossroads where we're given the chance to compromise a part of our faith and benefit in the short term, or having to look uh, over or move past something like a maybe a, a really good move for our family, a promotion, um, a chance to to do something that we might like more for our life to be easier, but we're denied that opportunity because of our faith. It's very possible. Okay, he goes on to say that it's the man or woman in church who knows the scriptures, who has heard heard the word held forth with accuracy, who has seen something of the miraculous power of God in changed lives, has had all those experiences and rejects it all, even identifying what he has seen with the power of Satan. This is a person who calls light darkness and who calls good evil in testimony to a massive perversion of their own spirit. The warning is particularly to those who have grown up in the church and may even have some theological education, but have willfully rejected it and in their heart of hearts attributed supposed Christian reality to evil. There's a little bit of a tie-in here to the most recent sermon I preached on May 28th, just a couple of days ago at the time of this recording. Jesus describes um, a group of people who... Uh, he calls them soil that's, that's shallow, soil that sits on top of a bed of rocks. Um, and the shallowness of that soil means that the faith of those people grows fast and seems to bear uh, at least the, the it looks like it's bearing fruit. So I'm trying to say the semblance, the resemblance of fruit, uh, but doesn't, isn't able to do that, doesn't follow through with faith, walks away, abandons. I read a quote to you guys from a guy named, named Helmut Thielek, a German Lutheran theologian from the last century. And he describes what he calls half-Christians. And he says that anti-Christians, which we would call ex-evangelicals today, if you want to say that, people who think they really understand the church, they think they really understand the evangelical movement, and therefore they have enough authority to comment on why it's broken or wrong. Some of them have that insight. Not all of them do. The internet is an easy place to sound like and look like you have experiences and information that you don't actually have. So we have to be careful about that. However, the point that I'm making is this that people who go that, that way, who deconstruct and never come back, never reconstruct or walk away from church and say, well, I got close enough to God, I got close enough to church to figure out what it's really about, it's not for me. Oftentimes they were halfway Christians is Helmut Felix's perspective and it's what R. Kent Hughes is hinting at. I think it's helpful application of where Jesus is headed with this, that there's a group of people in his day and age who know the scriptures of their day better than anybody else. And yet, as soon as they see physical evidence of God at work in their midst, their first thought is to attribute it to Satan. Why would that be? Okay, so here's, now we're entering into the preaching part for me. I'm gonna give you some commentary that I hope will be helpful. This is from me, praying, thinking about our church. Um, The thing that motivates you to identify a new idea with your enemy, uh, it's because that new idea is challenging something that you value. It feels like a threat. You have to feel threatened before you can demonize your opponent. If you demonize your opponent without a visible threat, you're either a liar, you're some kind of charlatan, maybe you work for a news company and it's your job to make people feel some kind of way so that you can sell ads in between segments that rile them up. That's possible. But in Jesus' day, these Pharisees, these scribes who've come down from Jerusalem, the only category that they can fit Jesus into is that of Satan. What does that tell us? What does that tell us about their faith? What does that say about their relationship to God the Father, the God that that they say that they serve? the God whose law they've memorized, how can you have such a gross misunderstanding of God's law that when God himself shows up to teach you what he meant, to clarify, to lead, to show by example what it looks like to live this life that the law is supposed to be pushing you toward, what does it say about your faith that as soon as you meet God in the flesh, you want him dead? Or maybe not. you're not all the way there yet, but you assume that he's actually God's enemy instead of God himself. To me, it says that it's very possible, and I think this is the warning for us, it's very, very possible to take all of God's law and to condense it and to memorize it and to study it and analyze it and maybe even apply it to your life, but to do so without God's presence, without the person of God, without the spirit of God. And the danger is that when you finally encounter God again, when your cold, dead religiousness comes up against Christianity, faith, Christ Himself, the Spirit of God at work in your life, that the real God will be so different from the little God in your head that you've created out of the laws of the real God that when you meet the real God, you'll reject Him because the real God is an enemy of your little God in your head. That's what the scribes and Pharisees are doing. They've decided that they know who Yahweh is, and anybody who looks drastically different from their idea of Yahweh must be God's enemy. They got the enemy part right. I think Jesus is an enemy to their way of thinking. He is an enemy to the fake made up God in their heads, in their hearts that works for them, that pets their ego, that soothes them when they feel guilty, but never demands anything from their life of any of any you know, concreteness, of any import, anything that matters. They, they, they just go to temple and they just follow laws, but they aren't required to actually deal with dirty, broken people, which of course is what God wants us to do that when Jesus arrives, he is an enemy, but he's not an enemy because he's God's enemy. He's an enemy because these men are, are God's enemies. It's they that are on the wrong team, not Jesus. And so what Jesus says to them is scary because I think we go, well, man, how do we, how do I know if I've committed this unforgivable sin? How can I navigate life without being really worried all the time that this is going to creep up on me? Or maybe I'll find out after I die that I'm going to have to go to hell instead of heaven. I don't think that's a threat. The best thing Arkant Hughes says in his commentary, just a couple paragraphs later, I'm gonna paraphrase it for you now, is that if you're worried about committing this sin, then you're not committing it. I think that's really helpful. That if your concern is that you might inadvertently blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you never will. You can't do it on accident. It's not something you stumble into. It's a symptom of a heart that has made a decision, a dead set decision, that it does not want to have anything to do with the living God, with his ways, with his word, with his son, Jesus, with his church and therefore rejects those things outright. So if I can get really practical with you, if you are willing to get up on a Sunday morning or a Saturday evening and attend a church service, even if you don't like what you hear, even if you don't wanna sing any of the songs, you don't give any money, you don't serve on a team, if there's a part of you that cries out to be in God's house with God's people, I would assume and expect that you are not guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And I would say any other state of your heart that's better, that's more alive, that's more healthy than that one, If you do serve, if you do love, if you wanna know God, if you're trying to grow closer to him, this isn't about measuring successes and failures in the scales at all. It's about whether or not you believe that God is who God says he is or you're on your way. That's really important. So when you read this passage about blaspheming the Holy Spirit and it being unforgivable, hopefully you'll understand now that Jesus is speaking to a very specific group of people who have made a decision in their heart to reject all of his ministry and to treat him as if he is God's enemy. I don't think that's something that threatens many of our lives. But if it is something that threatens your life, understand that Jesus doesn't say in this passage that these people have blasphemed the Holy Spirit once and for all and therefore they're unforgivable. He's still giving a warning even to people who are actively participating in this kind of sin right now. So if you are and maybe something about this message is is pulling on you a little bit and you're feeling like, "Man, I I don't know, this sounds a lot more serious than I thought it was. I might need to do something about this." Uh, you're never unforgivable. You're never unforgivable in life until you have made your decision at death's door that no matter what happens, you will reject God outright. You're forgivable because God's love is that big. It's not because of you. That's the power of grace and mercy of unmerited favor that God shows to you and I. We don't merit it. We can't earn it. Um, So I hope that's clarifying for you and helpful for you to know that blaspheming the Holy Spirit is a very specific heart posture over an extended period of time that is not meant to scare Christians who sometimes make mistakes or people who don't have all the answers but are trying to follow Jesus. It is something for those of us who are deeply immersed in church culture to be very wary of and to be careful that when and where we encounter the work of God in the world or something that looks like it could be, that we are generous with our assumptions, that we're careful before we jump in and lay judgment on somebody else, their faith, their perspective, their experience. And instead we show the same kind of grace that God shows to us repeatedly. I hope this is helpful to you. Uh, and if you have any questions or you want to follow up with me, send me an email. My email address is Philip, my first name, P-H-I-L-I-P. And uh, that's at true, T-R-U-E, North, N-O-R-T-H, Alaska, A-L-S-K-A.com. Philip at com. Uh, in the subject line, just let me know it's a question and uh, I'll make it a priority to get back with you in the next couple of weeks. Okay. Thanks for your time and God bless you. Be well. Bye-bye.